It is great to be here and celebrating Advent uh, together and uh, thankful to have you here. We have learned a number of things in our culture is that we actually take times or days and we assign things to them, like Black Friday, right? We know all about Black Friday, right? It's where we all go shopping. It's not that we don't shop the rest of the year, but that's a particularly heavy shopping day. And then there's Cyber Monday, and so the world gets on their computers and we buy stuff online. Not that we don't do it any other time, but we really do it on Cyber Monday. <clears throat> Perhaps you've learned as well, too, that there's now a Giving Tuesday. My inbox was just filled with all of these opportunities to be able to give to needs all over the place. And it's nice to be aware of those things. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's brand new to me to hear about Giving Tuesday. And then there is No Shave November, right? I mean, where in the world did that thing come from, right? And, and some of you are saying to people in your life, you know what, it's no longer November. You can shave your face now. Uh, but we have a, uh, we've decided to embrace this whole tradition of naming things and doing things in particular uh, times. We actually do something called decision-making December. Uh, last year we did this. Every Sunday morning we spent time in God's Word and we asked the question, what does it mean for us? What's the decision that God is calling us to do? That we not only hear the Word, but we actually respond to it and do something. So my hope is before you walk out of this room this morning, you will have stood as a statement of what God has told you or God has spoken to you about. And um, we'll look at what that looks like, but before you leave here this morning, it's my hope that every one of us in this room is going to stand up and affirm something about what they've heard God say to them this morning. Let's ask God to speak to us this morning. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God that does speak and that you intend that the words from this book would not only be heard by us, but would transform our lives. And so we want our heart and souls to be open to what you want to do in our lives as we look into your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In the aftermath of the devastation in Paris, there was this video clip. I first of all saw it on the national news of a father who was talking to his young son, must have been three, four years old, who was just didn't know what to do and filled with fear about these bad people with guns. And he saw candles and flowers and his dad said to this young boy, you're going to be okay People have lit candles and have put flowers there. And the little boy asks his dad, so how will that help with the people with guns? And the father assured this little guy that uh, the candles and the flowers would protect them. And it was a sweet little scene. It's on the internet now. There have been over 300,000 uh, view, uh, views of this father trying to tell his son that he could rest easy because people were lighting candles and displaying flowers. And we look at something like that and we say, I wonder if a candle will really help. Uh, will a flower really bring peace to the world? If we light enough candles and, and uh, lay out enough flowers, will there really be peace in the world? Well, there are other questions that come too after the... Uh, uh, carnage in San Bernardino, there were a number of people who were saying that they would pray for the people of San Bernardino. 
And actually, the New New York Daily News, the front of the New York Daily News on Thursday were these words, God isn't fixing this. And all of these religious people that are praying, it was just a, God isn't fixing this one. And for those of you that hope peace will come because of your prayers, guess what? God will do nothing. So you ask the question is, is what actually brings peace to the world? Uh, candles? Flowers? God? What God? And if God actually was bringing peace to the world through Jesus, uh, don't you think 2,000 years is about enough time? What does it look like for God to bring peace on earth? Actually, we have that explained as we looked at God, at, look at God's word and says, this is how I bring peace to the world. We see it in Luke 1. We see it in the major themes of this book. So I want to look at that this morning briefly. There are two basic points I think it's helpful for us to uh, pay attention to. And the first one is this, the definition of who Jesus is. Jesus is described here as the Prince of Peace. The angels said that this was true about Jesus, that he would come and he would bring peace on earth and goodwill to all on whom his favor would rest. That he is the bringer of peace. And this isn't a brand new declaration. This has been said before. Prophecies thousands of years before have talked about one who would come who would be the bringer of peace, the prince of peace. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 9 in verse 6, we see it described there that there would be a child that was born and this is what his name would be. His name would be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's what his name would be. And when Jesus is born, the angels describe him as that one who was prophesied. His name is, of this infant born, wonderful counselor, everlasting father, mighty God, prince of peace. He is the prince of peace. There are three reasons why he's described as the prince of peace. The first is this, because he's the creator of the world. Jesus Christ is the creator of the world. That's what our scriptures say. You go back to the book of Colossians and Jesus is described in this way. It says that Jesus didn't merely appear in the first century in a manger in Bethlehem. He appeared at the beginning of the world. He was the creator of the world. In Colossians 1 it says that by Christ all things were made. Not God, by Christ all things were made. And through him, everything holds together. And that's just not a physics lesson about what Jesus does. It's a declaration of the character of the world because he's the one that created it. He holds it together, and he holds it together and makes it vital and filled with shalom, filled with peace. Jesus invented a world characterized by peace. We see it right there in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. When God creates the world and we see a place that is characterized by beauty and by relationships that are precious and significant and by roles of purposeful work that are unencumbered by difficulty and hardship. Human flourishing is another word that we use to describe shalom or peace. 
It's not just simply the absence of conflict. It's the presence of something, of a world that's extraordinarily beautiful, beautiful, that's filled with relationships that matter with one another, and is filled with work and labor that has significance and impact along the way. Jesus is the Prince of Peace because he's the creator of the world. There's a second reason why he's the Prince of Peace, and it is because he is the one who defeats the evil one. He said this, he said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have life to the full. He is described as one who is the resurrection and the life. What gets in the middle of that is the evil one who comes to destroy and to kill. We even see him make his first appearance in Genesis 1 and 2 where the evil one shows up and says to Adam and Eve, you can be like God without him. Imagine that. You don't need the creator of the world. You're pretty good in and of yourself. And Satan pokes and tends to poke his finger in the eye of mighty God by taking these two whom God has created as the picture of who he is, the image of God in them, and leading them down a path towards destruction. But in the middle of that, in the middle of this devastation, this rejection of God's authority, God says something to Adam and Eve. He says this, I love you and I want you back. I want you back. And God makes this promise. He said, I will send one who will make it possible for us to be in relationship with one another again. And he says, That one that comes, his heel will be bruised by the evil one, but the Messiah will crush the head of the evil one and have victory over him. He defeats the power of the evil one. So we see a person who comes as Christ, Christ as Savior and Christ as Creator. And he brings us back from the devastation that helps that, that, that harms our lives. Paul actually talks about this in, in the book of in the book of Romans. Paul talks about this this uh, struggle with inside of himself. He says there are things that I want to do in my life. I want to be good, but I find myself unable to do it. There are things I want to do, I cannot do. There are things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And he describes this wrestling in himself as war, feeling a sense of wretchedness and a longing to be rescued. Turmoil that is the complete opposite of flourishing, the complete opposite of peace. And then he comes to this conclusion, the end of his description of the war that rages within him. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus, my Lord. He is the peacemaker. He invented peace. He destroys the power of the evil one to ruin our lives. And then there's a third aspect of it. He brings his kingdom to earth. He reestablishes peace. He comes as the one who brings peace on earth and goodwill to all. He comes to earth and he brings peace. Now there's a challenge here because there's a deep misunderstanding in regards to even what this looks like, that he's going to establish his kingdom. I mean, even the disciples got this one messed up. They thought that Jesus was going to actually get rid of the structures, the political hierarchies that were in existence right then. 
get rid of the governors, get rid of the Caesar, get, get rid of whoever was in charge, and Jesus would come in and he would set up his kingdom opposed to that. And even when Jesus was going into Jerusalem, you remember Palm Sunday where they were throwing palm branches and they were saying, here he comes, he's going to be the new king and he's going to supplant every other ruler that there is. Uh, the disciples were hoping that he would do that. Even the disciples were trying to figure out what kind of position of power am I going to have in Jesus' reign? I'm going to be on his right hand, I'm going to be on his left hand. Parents were trying to lobby for their kids to be in particular places. There was a sense of Jesus is going to replace one hierarchy with another. We should have known better, actually, because Jesus talked in terms of living with humility. The first shall be last, he said. Blessed are the meek, for they're the ones that will inherit the earth. We should have known that Jesus' kingdom was different. I mean, he talked about, even in the passage we read earlier, from Isaiah 53, we read about Christ's kingdom in these terms. Surely he, this is a reference to Jesus, surely he took up our pain, he bore our suffering. Doesn't sound like a king to me, does it? He bore our pain, he took up our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, we considered him stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. This is what his kingdom looks like. A God, mighty God, who gives his life so that we can experience peace. That's what his kingdom looks like. So Jesus is the one who is Prince of Peace, and Luke chapter 1 lets us know what it means for us to experience peace in our own lives. I'm a little bit of a, going to do a little geek thing here in regards to this text. It's actually a pretty cool thing. You, you see in the text, and this just wasn't simple narrative. There was a point that Luke was making in this gospel. And we see, first of all, two startling reactions by Mary. And then we see two remarkable statements about the character of God and of Jesus Christ. That's what we see. There are two startling reactions from Mary. We see the first one in 29. The angel comes to Mary and greets her, and it says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of a greeting this might be. And then we see another startling moment where Mary asks in verse 34, how will this be? Don't you realize I don't have a husband? I haven't had a physical relationship with man yet. How can this possibly be? So these two moments of wonder or, or, or uh, 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 just puzzlement for her. And then, Jesus, or then Mary writes a song that describes what she's learned about Jesus, the Jesus who startled her. And the first is this, that he is a God of incredible mercy. She said that she, the text says that she was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what it was all about. Zechariah was startled earlier in Luke chapter 1. Zechariah was startled because he saw an angel. Mary was startled because of what the angel said. What was it about the greeting that troubled her so much? Well, we know exactly what it was because it says that the angel came and he said that Mary was highly favored. She's startled by the greeting 
And then it says, the angel said it again. Mary, you are highly favored. For a person who lived such a humble life, in that culture, she may have only been 12 years old. I mean, that's the age at which people, young women in this culture, would get married. We don't know exactly how old she is, but she was a very young woman. And she was a woman. And she lived in a part of Israel that was just one of those small town places. And she describes herself as being characterized by absolutely a humble estate. And the God of the universe comes to her and says, You are highly favored. And she can hardly believe it. And then she composes a song about a God who is a God who is rich in mercy. It says in verse 50, His mercy extends to those, to all of those who fear Him from generation to generation. He's lifted up the humble, verse 52. He's filled the hungry with good things. Verse 54, He's helped His servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary says this about Jesus. He is the peacemaker because he's characterized by astounding mercy. Astounding mercy. God has shown his favor to me, this very, very insignificant person. That's what God is like. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus comes and shows mercy. It doesn't matter where you've come from. Jesus shows mercy to the smallest of people. And that brings peace for Mary. Peace is also possible because of his surprising might. This was Mary's second reaction, actually. This doesn't happen. I, I ha I'm not in a relationship with a man yet. How is it possible for me to have a child? Now think about this. If Jesus actually was the creator of the world, and that's what he did. For him to allow Mary to conceive before she's married is small potatoes, isn't it? And this is not simply a statement about God's power in that as a virgin she conceives. It's a statement about God's holiness, that God does some, something completely other, completely extraordinary, completely different. God is stand out wholly different. And the virgin birth is a statement of God's holiness that resides in his son, Jesus Christ, as well. Because of his surprising mercy and because of his surprising might, God brings peace to the world. And we see this displayed. She talks about what he does, what God does to generations and nations and rulers. And we've seen stories of that. I remember reading Chuck Colson's book, Kingdoms in Conflict, as Colson chronicled what people who feared God and followed Jesus did in places like Poland and in places like Russia and in places like the Philippines. We see story after story of people who say, I want to live a life completely surrendered to God. I want God's might through Christ and his mercy through Christ to characterize the way I live out my life. We actually saw it in South Africa. 
Bishop Desmond Tutu comes in and he says, you know what? We follow Jesus. We're going to do this the right way. And in the midst of racism and apartheid, Christians rallied together and they said, no, we are going, we are going to walk through this in such a way that preserves peace. And it's this extraordinary demonstration of a nation being completely changed because people stepped in and with the strength of Christ and the mercy and grace of Christ, we're able to change the course of a nation. We're going to repent. We're going to listen. We're going to challenge. We're going to forgive. And the nation was entirely transformed. Remarkable story. We see it happening in pockets in the United States, actually. We see what happened in Charleston. The whole nation was surprised, weren't we? When a young man walks into a prayer meeting and kills people, and those who were in relationship with the men and women that were killed in that prayer room in Charleston say to the world, we will be characterized by forgiveness and grace. Surprises the world. That's what Jesus does. When he comes into a life with might and mercy, lives are changed and peace comes. That's how it happens. And that's how it happens here. We see this third point of what occurs here. Peace is possible because Mary chose to give to God her heart. She surrenders. She says, whatever you want, you do whatever you want. I am the Lord's servant. This is the pathway to peace. It's not only that he comes with might and he comes with mercy, but he comes to those who say, and God, you may have my heart. You know, we laud Mary, and appropriately so, because she gives herself to the Father. But this wasn't put here so that we can laud Mary as much as it was put here so that we can follow Mary. That's the reason why God put this in here. See one who chooses in recognition of God's might and mercy to surrender their heart to him. And we discover that what's true of God's kingdom is not that he takes real estate and controls it, but that he changes hearts and brings peace. God's agenda isn't to grab more real estate in places like Russia or China or the United States or the Middle East. He doesn't want real estate. His kingdom isn't about square footage. His kingdom is about what he does in my heart. He wants hearts in Russia and hearts in the United States, and hearts in China, and hearts in the Middle East, because we see what he does with them. He changes hearts, and peace comes. That's how Christ's kingdom comes on earth, because people like you and me all over the world say to God the same thing Mary did. I see your might, and I see your mercy. I give to you my heart. I give to you my heart. Peace comes to the world through Christ, one surrendered life at a time. Peace comes to the world through Christ, one surrendered life at a time. 
And then Mary says this remarkable thing. In verse 48, she says, from now on, or another, uh, another way it is expressed there is from this day forward. Luke uses that construct actually several times in Luke and in, and in Acts to refer to a moment in time where a person has discovered, has encountered the living God and has made a decision that changes the trajectory of their life. And Mary says about her life, from now on, my life has changed. Why? Because she said to God, I belong to you. God wants a for now on moment, from now on moment for every single one of us. And I want to talk about what that might mean for you this morning. I actually think there are three decisions that could possibly be made or declarations that could be made um, this morning by all of us in this room. I'm actually going to ask you to stand at a point in time and say, that's the one that's true for me. One of them might be an affirmation. Some of you this morning are going to stand up and you're going to say this. I know the reality of this peace, of a life that flourishes because Christ is present in my life. I know it. It's not because I'm a big deal, it's because of who he is. And I have seen it. He has characterized my life by flourishing that I never imagined. And I am testament not to who I am, but to what he does. He is the Prince of Peace. I know it, and I've seen it. And I'm going to ask you to stand in just a few minutes, and then we're going to pray for you. There are others in this room who you would say, you know what, for me, I need to make an acknowledgement this morning. We've talked about peace, and I've known it in the past. I've given my life to Christ, but frankly, in this season of my life, I find myself far from peace. And I want my life to flourish again. I want to know his peace. I want to recommit my life to Christ. There's some of you in this room that are going to stand up and say, that's true for me. I want it. I want it. And then there may be some of you in this room who would say, you know what, for me it's a surrender thing because I've never really made that decision. I've never given my life to God as Mary gave hers to him. And I'm making a decision this morning. I understand that my flourishing depends on surrendering my life to Christ. And like Mary, I am ready to surrender my life to him and I'm going to do it now. I want a life characterized by flourishing because I invite him in with all of his might and all of his mercy to change who I am. And I'm going to ask you to stand and we'll pray for you. So let me ask those of you who would say the first thing, I'm going to testify to the reality of Jesus as the Prince of Peace. And I'm asking you to stand right now and say this. I know the reality of his peace. I know what a life that flourishes look like because God has done that in me. And I testify to the reality of that peace. God is that real, and I know it. I'm going to pray for you. Let's pray. God, thank you for these statements, these statements of lives that declare the reality that you are alive, that you come into hearts, you transform them in such a way that we experience a flourishing that can't be experienced any other way. God, thank you for these lives. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to guide them into a Christ-likeness 
that allows that peace and that flourishing to continue to overflow. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. And for those of you who would say, you know what, I've heard God say something to me this morning. I know what human flourishing looks like. I know what God intends. And today, I find myself further from it than I want to be. And I'm going to ask you to stand right now as you say this. I did give my life to Christ. I find myself far from that peace. And I want my life to flourish again. I want to know his peace. I want to recommit my life to Christ. And just ask you to stand as you are making that statement and expressing that longing. Now let's pray for you. God, I thank you for these men and women who long to have what you long to give, Lord, that you would again in their lives bring to them flourishing and peace, that you would guide them in paths that would help them to be able to get to that place that you intend for them. They would know again your power and they would know your mercy, that you would show them pathways to it, that very soon they might be able to say, I know what it is to experience the Prince of Peace again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And then perhaps there's someone, some people in this room that say, you know what, never made this decision. And uh, you want to stand and you say, it's today. I've decided I will surrender. I will say and live out the words of Mary. I am the Lord's servant. I understand that my flourishing depends on my surrender of life to Christ. And like Mary, I'm ready to surrender my life today. And would you just please stand if that's true? And so would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks into our lives and hearts. And Lord, there are people in our lives that we long to have experience who you are in this way of peace. And so, Lord, we pray for those whom your heart longs for, and ours as well, that they would see the character of Jesus in such a way they would know him as we have. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.